0: Hello and welcome to No Place I'd Rather Be, a podcast about St. John's University basketball and the legacy of Minnesota's all-time collegiate wins leader, Coach Jim Smith. Today, we get to the conclusion of our conversation with 87 grad Phil Johnson and 84 grad John Wehoff, both of whom played key roles in making the 80s one of the most successful decades in Johnny basketball history with a couple more timely interjections from one of our hosts, Tom Connell, class of 84, who's no slouch himself. But that's for another time. So, this being part two, as always, part one is highly recommended. I mean, nothing hits quite like nostalgia. And that just so happens to be what we do best here at Benchwarmers Media, sort of pushing the sand back up through the hourglass. A lot to get to on today's episode. And again, thanks to the hosts for doing such a good job of keeping it on the rails during this conversation so we could just let it roll from start to finish. So let's get to it. Here's Phil Johnson, John Wehoff, and Coach Smith with hosts Tom Connell and John Russell.
1: John, you had mentioned the... Uh the game. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of reconstruct that game.
2: Uh, well, that, that was definitely one of my best memories from uh, college basketball is uh, when we were juniors, we played uh, in the section playoffs at UMD. And, and UMD was really, really good that they year. Really I good. mean, they were ranked in the top ten actually they had a seven foot kid a six ten. their starters were like seven foot six ten six nine Ooh. and they were all really good <laughs> and we had watched them play in a christmas tournament i think we were we didn't play them but we watched them play and it was like a dunk fest you know yeah. it was uh it was a, it was a pretty high caliber team and their best player was their point guard uh so anyways we uh were able to qualify for the sections and we had to play UMD at UMD. And I guess there weren't probably, uh, formalized fan duel things back then, but we'd have been heavy, heavy underdogs. I mean, we were not at all, you know, I think anticipated to, to really even probably be all that competitive and we ended up beating them, uh, on a last second shot. And it was, it was just, Uh, easily one of my best memories. And then we we still had one more game. That was like the first game. So we were the, I think the four seed and they were the one seed. And then we had to play Concordia-Moorhead after that again too. And we we, uh, actually won that game pretty handily. We kind of ended up blowing them out at Concordia. But we had to win at UMD and at Concordia. That's when Concordia had the seven foot four kid too, uh, Garrett Byrne or whatever Mm. his name was. So we had a, our junior year, we had a pretty tough road to uh, Kansas city to get down there, but we won uh, two incredible games. And then, you know, kind of similar to my high school experience, one of the downsides we got down there, we, we had a pretty tough draw our first game. I think it was St. Mary's of Texas who had like played, you know, eight or 10 division one schools that year and was really good. So uh, that was back before they had NCAA division three, you know, tournaments that you could, you could do. So we, we, Won a couple really special games to, to get to that tournament and then lost the first round down in Kansas City. But it, the, the memories of those section games to get to Kansas City were pretty special. Yeah, your last second shot. But I remember their coach, I remember his name,
3: but I can picture him coming into our locker room after that game and just saying, it was really gracious, saying congratulations, yeah. you guys deserve to win. And then he's like, Molitor. Worry seriously, <laughs> ten for ten. I right? remember that you
1: missed a yes. shot in that game. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, it was. It's kind that's of what a pretty, bagated, right? Yeah, that's a pretty Is big game. We we had to play our best to beat them. Amen, they, right? they, yeah. they were they were physically just a bigger, better team with yeah. you know way better track record. But uh, you know, I think I, I mentioned this in the book thing too. But you know, part of when you have a coach. I don't even know how many years you had been at St. John's, but, you know, it was pretty intimidating to go into there. And you had, you had said, you know, I think St. John's teams had one on that floor four or five times in a row. And as, as good as UMD was, and it was a bigger division two school and that team was phenomenal, you know, part of what, coaches challenge is to convince your own kids that you can win you know yeah. and it's not that we were lacked confidence or anything but that yeah. was that was a pretty good team he, he yep. didn't pull a tape measure out did he <laughs> same height same distance yeah. Yeah, actually i don't know if that would have yeah. worked because they were so much taller than yeah. us it wouldn't have uh but yeah i i can remember you know in preparation for that game you know a lot of the things that coach said it was like hey we can we can win you know it's, it's yeah. cool. we're gonna have to play great we're gonna have to uh, respect who they are you can't just go in there and you're gonna have to go 10 for 10 yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> mom was 10 for 10 i think i was nine for you're something pretty good yeah, yeah we, pretty well, we all had to shoot well because yeah. they were gonna out rebound us for sure and uh a different thing, but it was pretty special. And that was another night where the gym was sold out long. I don't Go know ahead. how big loose gym was, but uh, that was a pretty, pretty special night, too. That's pretty cool.
4: Can I back up for a second? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So at what point in the program did you start to feel that um, the standard of excellence— was set. It was higher maybe than you'd, you'd played to in high school, or, you know, even as you got deeper into it at St. John's, you just, you, there was this standard of excellence and you were motivated to play to it, practice to it. You know, what did that feel like? What did it look like? What were some elements of what did you'd say? It taught you, whether it's a basketball or in anything you're doing, I, I set
5: the standard of excellence. You know, I don't play down to somebody else's. Um, I noticed it in our preseason program, you know, it was, wasn't formal. It was four on four. It was show up at the gym at this uh, time. And when you're in high school and you're picking teams for pickup ball or whatever, you always, you know, it's easy to get in the mindset, well, we're going to, we're going to kind of stack a team and then we're going to have the court and we're going to be able to keep playing. Um, cause that's how it went. You know, the winners kept the floor. Um, but it always happened in our four- on four that a couple of the older guys would try to line up balanced teams, so the best two players, instead of being on the same team, would go head- to-head and push each other. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just kind of expected that, you know, nobody's going to try to just run the table on the court. We're going to have comp- competitive play, and you're going to push each other, and um, make, we're all going to make
2: each other better. Yeah, I would say very similar. the The culture and the work ethic and the depth of the talent hits you pretty quick. You know, I, well, there were formal tryouts. You know, even though we were quote recruited or whatever, I I think our freshman year, Tom, you know, sixty some kids yeah. tried out. For basketball and i i still one of my memories was i was the tallest kid on my high school team and when we went to that trial we lined up from tallest to shortest and i was somewhere in the 20s you know at a division three school and you know it was like there were some big kids and it was very competitive and like phil said you you know even before that you you'd had these competitive pickup games and stuff and then uh Boy, it just like I said a couple of times, it just was really eye-opening in terms of the caliber of the kids, the depth of the kids, uh, and you know, not all those sixty-some kids were great basketball players, but all of them really wanted to make the team. You know, everybody was out there scrapping and diving. They were all, I mean, they were it was all the best uh, players on their own. Yeah, team. yeah, it was super competitive. <laughs> so it hits you right away that this is a, a big notch up, especially you know, compared to the high school that I that I went to, and then you know. The, the program itself in terms of the success that we had always being near the top of the conference and sections, I think that reinforced it too, just that uh, you know, the program was really successful for that period of time in there, and so just like any successful program, you don't want to be the the team that lets it down, you know, so there, I think there was a certain amount of pride that just got baked in after uh, you know, I, I know Schmidt had success from the time he got there, but You know, really leading up to Frank's thing, I think it took a new, it went up a few notches, you know, just a success. And we were like right after that. So we Mm -hmm. wanted to keep it going. Yeah. And we were reminded of those guys, too. Remember? uh,
3: You know, Pat McKenzie used to. Okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 But that, you know, to your point, I mean, those guys established that standard of excellence. You saw it, you know, watching them play when you were in high school. Right. Um, And, you know, and and we were very successful, you know, uh, as when you came in, Mm -hmm. you know, you saw that, um, you know, the success of those. We won 20 games in 1983, 84, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I think we just lost by one one game in the the conference championship. But
4: um, moving to are we good on that. Yeah, I, I like that. You know, you, part of it was is just a sense when you walk in. Okay, this is, there's a different expectation. There's a different air about
2: what we're doing here, and I think that wakes you up. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot from the other players, like yeah. Phil said. It's even before the first formal tryout or practice. There's an element of democracy and equality that you got to earn your way there and play hard. And uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was a great culture and a competitive culture that uh, hit you pretty quick when you got there or you didn't survive. Yeah, so I,
3: I remember one of the first times I was down at the Plestra and um, we beat Pablo Martinez's team. And he took the ball and he slammed it so hard it, it almost hit the ceiling. And I remember thinking, am I supposed to care that much? <laughs> I guess so. Is that how this works? Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, let's talk about preseason again because we've ha- we've had some conversations about that. John, help me on this memory, but I thought we I remember us doing twenty killers in twenty minutes the first day of practice. We never had to run the mile.
2: Yeah, I know we, we usually ran. We up- had
3: something that first day.
2: yeah. Just to just to see where everybody was starting out from, I think it was a was a good way. But and and one of the things that I, I still think about a lot, Phil referenced it too, was that uh, you know, Coach was I guess by design pretty hands off in in the preseason, but I just did influence that we should play half court games rather than full court games, and you know, so most of the preseason was four on four half court pickup, and I think it caused you to play a lot more defense, and you know, probably. Uh, did that a little bit. So one of the, one of the things I I remember is that for that month of school before the program formally started, you probably, I, I at least probably wasn't running as much as I was even in the summertime or during the season or whatever. So I remember that opening practice always hitting a little bit harder too, because we have been playing a lot of basketball, but it wasn't necessarily running up and down the court. And once you do that, half dozen times you feel a little bit different so yeah i oh, yeah. i remember that opening practice i remember being winded uh most of the time it would take a while to get your sea legs did you guys have the same yeah and and i remember uh i don't
5: remember who it was but they were more than just winded <laughs> <They were getting laughs> over there at the garbage can yeah. unloading yeah. smith like uh like in the movie Miracle, again. It yeah. 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 well, wasn't the deal, you know, so the
4: 10, 10 and 10 are 20 and 20. Yeah, 20 you're always 20. starting at the top. So it didn't matter if it took you 20 seconds to run that first one, or now you're at 55, just turn around and get ready, because you're going again, yeah. right, at the top yeah. of the clock. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Brutal. Brutal, Coach. Yeah, I know. It I, was I know. intense.
1: I felt ringy badly about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. it That's 20. why I kept doing yeah. it for yeah. the next two
3: decades. Yeah. <laughs> So talk a little bit about You've referenced it before. Talk, Coach, a little bit about that um, change from NAI to NCAA that happened literally the year after we left, yeah. right? So 84, 85.
4: Yeah.
3: <clears throat> well, we had, um, we sort of had dual membership,
1: but within a dual membership of one sport would commit, you know, to the NAI or to the NCAA, the rest of us were sort of tempted to follow. but. Um, The NCAA really did not do much for small colleges uh, at that time. In other words, uh, tournament-wise, they really didn't have a good tournament. Um, The NEIA really did have a great tournament. And it was, we were probably um, playing against teams that have full scholarships uh, in the NEIA, which was completely unfair, and we did, you know, we did not have fifth-year players playing for us. Uh, everybody had four years to compete. That was it. And in the NEIA, the rules were very, you know, very not restrictive at all. Uh, so they had they had great teams. And many of the teams that were in the NEIA eventually went NCAA Division I. So, it was, you know, in effect, you know, it was sort of unfair for our players to be involved uh, with the NEIA. I think we had been at NCAA... I, I can't believe that during these during the eighties that we would not have been in the final four often. I really think so. I think we're, I think we're that good, uh, with the teams in the eighties. Uh, I thought we were, you know, very, very competitive that way. But again, that's, uh, you know, that's the way it was.
3: The NAIA tournament was in, always held in Kemper arena in Kansas city. And, um, it was, uh, You know, it was a tournament where we were overmatched. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Um, But it was a a really cool event. You know, they had a a parade of champions that um, they had the night before the tournament started. I remember, you know, practices as well, When you know, all the way through when coach would, we'd have morning practices and coach would be saying, hey, you got to be ready. You got to be ready to play in the morning. So we get to that national tournament. You know, we could have a morning game, so you got to be ready to get up early and get ready to play Um, kind of talked about that quite a bit, you know, when we'd have those morning practices. But the Parade of Champions was a very cool event, a lot of really talented players, um, but we're so much better off, you know, in the NCAA Division three level, you know, where we're, we're a lot more competitive. And I, th- I think that's been a, a great move for the program.
1: And finally, with um, we eventually uh, the conference decided to go strictly NCAA, and that sort of took a load off the schools uh, in regards to determining are you going to go in NEIA or NCAA? Like we didn't have a choice. I mean, we we're going to be NCAA. But we had started up uh, many years ago with the uh, with the NEIA getting involved in playoffs. We never had playoffs, uh, in, uh, in the MIAC, but at coaches meetings, you know, we finally determined the coaches that if we have a playoff kind of a situation, we'll make enough money at, in, during the district playoffs, uh, that we'd be able to send a team on to the NEI national championships, uh, which we did. And, uh, again, here we are playing against, uh, the teams in the NIC at that time with St. Cloud and Mankato and Duluth, uh, teams that were offering scholarships and I, our guys did well. In fact, I think um, the pioneer press had a, uh, had a um, uh, article that came out that indicated that St. John's basketball was the number one team in the eighties of all the teams in, uh, in Minnesota. Uh, and, which was a great uh, tribute to these guys, who Ring did a super job. Um, but again, that was that was a very unusual time, and now the NCAA, of course, has picked up and they're getting better and better and better, mm-hmm. uh, and doing more for the NCAA Division Three teams, uh, which is great. You know,
2: yeah. if you look at the structure now, with a conference tournament and then a Division Three NCAA tournament. That makes me jealous. You know, yeah. who, who knows how far we would have made it or not made it? But it would have been really fun to find out. Yeah. You know, it was. Uh, we used to joke that the NAIA stood for the National Association of Ineligible Athletes. <laughs> it was. It was a That's, lot of kids who up. Get, It was a lot of kids who couldn't get into Division One schools, yeah, right? Who, who were phenomenal were athletes, but were, you know, the rules were pretty tight back then. So, yeah. you know, especially like our junior year, we were on a great roll. We had a really good team, and and man, the team that we played was like uh not an NCAA division three team so yeah, five yeah. slam
3: a jam i think we <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> saw I think we walked in and watched him practice right <laughs> yeah our coach had headphones in mm-hmm.
5: and they
1: were
3: just running fast brake drills and lob yeah. dunks and we're like
5: oh, all yeah. right
3: yeah. <laughs> five foot eight
1: guy dunking <laughs> hmm, uh, <Yeah>. that's unusual
5: <laughs>
3: so Phil then you had the NCAA experience Right, where you actually hosted? I want to say yeah. it was eighty-five, eighty-six. 85, 86 was the team. first time we hosted an NCAA.
5: Yep. What's that? Sixteen. Uh, um, yeah. 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 We we played a team from Nebraska in the first round and had our worst shooting night oh, I think goodness. of the whole year and ended up getting beat. Um, but then. At that time they played a third place game the mm. next morning. Like so you're playing Sunday noon mm. and we played uh, Pomona Pitzer of California mm. coached by Popovich, right? Yeah. Greg Popovich. Ah, yeah. and a, a young Greg Popovich and um yeah, we smoked them. They, yeah. they weren't very interested in playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're 1-0 against Popovich. No. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> but then uh, back to the rats a little bit, uh, they crossed a few lines in the, in the tournament we were hosting. And I, w- I was working in Father Roman's office at the time as my work-study job. And he showed me a letter that he got from the NCAA, something like St. John's will never host another yep. NCAA tournament <laughs> because of the behavior of the students. Huh? But that has since been reversed, <laughs> I think. But
3: so I wanna kinda of change gears a little bit and because I wanna talk a little bit about context. This is part of it. every time we we interview, we talk about people, how much um, do you remember about what was happening off campus, state, national, world events that might have been impacting what was happening on campus? So I, I'll start. I don't think we, I ever went to the refectory where there wasn't someone out protesting ROTC. You remember that? That was a huge movement mm-hmm. on, on campus. I knew right? I remember that.
4: It was a very strong anti-military Wave. Yeah, that's interesting, especially at that point in time when we were, the, we were really in a state of peace. We weren't, in, we weren't engaged in active combat anywhere. So it's interesting to me that during your guys' era, they were protesting ROTC. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to no, do that. No, it's all, it's it, but all good, but it actually is an effect of the experience
3: of Vietnam, you know, and, and the, the, the kinds of things that we came to know about Vietnam that we didn't know while Ten we were in war. Earlier. yeah.
4: yeah.
2: Yeah. Very anti-military mm-hmm. period of
4: time.
2: Hmm. Yeah, one of the uh, conver- ongoing conversations that I've had with Rob Culligan and others is that, you know, I know with uh, with a school like St. John's, there are some curriculum choices around, I think some some people believe that, you know, the school would be best suited to be sort of an elite liberal arts school that really only only offers that and doesn't have ROTC and doesn't have a business school and doesn't have you know some of the other things that you would associate with other universities and you know i i always like to try to share my story that i ended up being you know a business major that you know i i feel like while i benefited immensely from the liberal arts philosophy and all that it has to offer that having ROTC and a business school and some of the other things that are not necessarily directly associated with liberal arts makes the school bigger and stronger and mm-hmm. I know there's ongoing debates around that and what makes most sense, but I I do remember those protests that, uh, you know, I always hold out Notre Dame as kind of the other model of, you know, it's very liberal artsy as well too. I had a daughter that went there, but it's also, you know, very proud of its business school and very proud of its military connections and different uh, things that I think, you know, if the reality is there's just a lot of stuff that happens in the world around war and other things. And I, I think to sort of, Universities are already pretty isolated. I mean, to isolate yourself even further, you know, from from there, maybe it creates a learning environment in one respect, but I don't know, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the broader curriculum being there, and I remember those ROTC protests, I was not in you know, I didn't like the protests, I I thought we should have it. You know, John, to the, the point you're making there, like Notre Dame, <laughs> proud of their
4: engineering too. Yeah. These, yeah. these real... Concentrated technology, technology, technology today is, a, you know, yeah, yeah. very disciplined. Yeah. right? And, and I think what I find interesting about St. John's is the liberal arts opens us up. But the other curriculum still gives us a chance to really channel the disciplines to be successful, practical disciplines yeah. to be successful in your business, in your case, business career your teaching career, right? Mm-hmm. I and mean, you
2: have to execute things. yeah. And that's you get that learning at St. Mm-hmm. John's as well. You know, today, technology is probably the best example of it. It's changing everything, and it's such a big part of life. And, you know, I, I think if you don't offer education around that, you're just going to get too isolated from what's happening in the real world. Uh, you know, there might be certain classes or certain things when you should do that, but I don't know. I, I, I thought St. John's having all that, was good, and I think it's as important today as ever that it's a broader curriculum and that they embrace all those things.
1: And the opportunity to protest it's an American democracy, yeah. I mean, we should be able to protest, yeah. Um, not a necessarily a physical protest right now, we have a lot of anti Semitism going on, mm. and people are protesting, you know, Israelis battle with the Hamas and uh, but again that's the American way you protest you don't like something you better say something and if you don't say anything then you don't have you don't have a dime in the uh, in the uh,
2: deal have the argument in public right Mm -hmm. so uh, and Going back to your context question, too, I remember our, our international trip was to Yugoslavia, which, yeah. you know, was a part of the world that was at peace at the time. And it was phenomenal. And I, you know, remember that trip very vividly. But I also remember about 10 years later, it all getting blown up. Yeah, and war. absolutely. And, I yes. mean, that Early 90s. It, was, it was a time of peace when we were there, but it just shook me that. Uh, that one of the first real international experiences we had playing basketball and seeing an incredible part of the world like that, that literally it got blown to bits 10 years later. It doesn't exist anymore yeah.
5: as, as an
3: entity. Yeah. yeah. As a country.
2: Yeah.
5: We had a similar experience with our China trip. Yes. Um, you know, China wasn't nearly as open in 87 as it became. Um, you know, and a couple of years after our visit to China, they had the Tiananmen Square incident. Oh. And so we're watching the... Trials on TV, and they're holding mm-hmm. these trials in the gyms that we played in, um, and it's, it's surreal to, yeah. uh, to think how much things can change in such a short time.
1: Yeah, it seemed like um, a few years after many of the tours that we took, there was difficulty in the country. No, I don't know if that had anything to do with us or not, <laughs> but Poland was the same thing. A couple of years afterwards. They had a, an eruption, and uh, Yugoslavia was the same thing. Yeah. China was the same thing. So people were not too
2: that's happy a, you about know, that's seeing a this whole cum. other
1: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right?
3: Yeah. Uh, Some definitely to dig into for <laughs> sure. <laughs> but you know it, what's great about it is is that it, it, we all know how isolating uh, St. John's can be, right? Yeah. Being behind the pine curtain. But the trips opened our eyes in ways Very that nothing huge. else could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I remember um, be, being in Yugoslavia and just being like every time I go to the bathroom, there's a poster of Marshal Tito. Yes. Right. I don't know if <laughs> yeah, you remember but, that. Yes. Yeah. He was everywhere. <clears throat> yeah. Including in the bathroom. Right. And and just um, and then once he's gone, it you know it all kind of got weird. But. Um, the opportunities we had to experience that I think are, were incredibly good. At valuable. that point in
2: time, there's a great uh, ESPN 30 for 30 on this too. At that point in time, that part of the world is really embracing basketball. And, and, yeah. You know, that might have had something with I don't know how we got invited or how you picked Mm -hmm. those locations or whatever, but there was a lot of talent coming out of there, even into the NBA then. And so I I think the parts of the world that are trying to open up to the West and embrace some of the stuff and invite us were great experiences. But then you see the relapse where, like Phil said earlier, it kind of makes you appreciate what you have, you know, that uh, what we saw when we were there wasn't always the case and it didn't stay that way when we left.
3: Right. Um, There was also a, um, mean, this was happening while we were at school, but it didn't officially happen until the legislature in 1985 changed the drinking age from 19 to 21 um, in the state of Minnesota. So there's a huge conversation happening on campus, right, about now what? Because when we got to campus, you had a student ID, you could drink beer at Rad Hall during the dances, didn't matter how Mm -hmm. old you were. Um, not anymore.
5: You remember that conversation at all? Oh, yeah. We're right in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, because it was 19 when I got to St. John's, yeah. um, at 21 before I left. And so, yeah, they were trying to decide how they were going to handle that. And I, I believe the decision was, you know, if you're a student and then you have beer in your own room, you're not outside or out doing stuff, you can continue to, to have you know whatever and i had friends that went to the state schools you know and we were watching them come into the into the dorm and you see them at their car and they're like what are, what are they doing bringing their laundry <laughs> into the dorm well they had to cover the beer up with their dirty clothes and bring it because that's the way it was at the state schools and i just thought that was ridiculous don't they trust their students was that drinking
3: age one year for 19-year-olds and then switched? or I
5: It was 19
0: remember. when we
3: got to campus. I think it okay. dropped, I don't know, post-Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, and then went back up again in 1986. That was yeah. part of that national push by the mothers of the yeah. Drunk driving. In, in Minnesota,
2: yeah. it was 18, and then they moved it up to 19, and then nationally, everybody went to 21. Mm-hmm. So It's supposed to be a state-by-state state decision, but then <clears throat> they passed some kind of federal highway funding thing that you couldn't get highway money unless you had it went along with the uh, uh, went along yeah. with the 21 drinking age so then it, the federal government kind of ripped it away from the states and made everybody 21 but
1: when i was in high school no, this is not prohibition years
2: you guess,
5: game, <laughs> not quite but, <laughs> yeah. but you did drink yeah. 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 when i
1: was in high school the um, drinking age for women was 18 for men was 21 and i got fixed up on a date when I was a senior with a, um, a student from Northwestern. So we went out for dinner after a dance and we sat down, and she could drink a cocktail or a beer, and I could not. And it seemed like reverse discrimination. Yeah. Honest to God, 18 for women. Was there any logic? behind that? Well, Mm -hmm. women are more sensible. More responsible. (laughs) Obviously. Wow.
3: Wow. Those
1: Illinois people. Oh, yes. (laughs) There must have been money involved in it somehow. Uh,
3: I'm not sure what it was. Usually, if it's Illinois. With with politics, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of, you know, we're at that point. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you uh, have some interest in, in maybe talking about? Anybody? A best memory?
1: Uh, uh... Well, possibly, uh, you know, the academic situation with basketball players. I, they have really uh, been extremely good, um, academics. And I don't know if we really push it that hard, but um, I remember taking people out for dinner. And I can't remember if it was during your years or after that, but anybody who had a 3.5, I'd take them out for dinner. One year I had out of 18 guys in the squad, I had 15 of them that had a 3.5 or above. And I think, unless you guys know, know of anyone else who didn't graduate, I think we only had one guy who didn't graduate in 51 years that was there. That's amazing. And it's uh, incredible. And most of them graduated in four
4: years. Money-wise. Phil, Phil milked it a little bit. Yeah, with well, yeah. injuries <laughs> he, I, yeah. I wanted to keep him around <laughs> as long as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah.
3: Wait, you took guys that had 3.5s and above out for dinner?
2: Yeah. I never heard about <laughs> <I>
4: that. Why didn't <laughs> that. I
3: didn't know Maybe either? Out. Right? Was that possible? Yeah. Why was I not uh,
2: notified? Uh, well, uh, and, uh, and I think what you said is important, Coach. It's not, it's not just graduating. I mean, I didn't just graduate from St. John's. I learned a lot. Got a great degree. Got really, you know, challenged academically and... Uh, you know, basketball was a phenomenal experience, but the the whole academic part of it was was just as good as well, and it all and they both complemented each other. So I, I I do think there's still a lot of stereotypical. Thinking out there that athletes don't really go to school, and maybe that is true mm-hmm. at Division One programs or whatever. But I, I honestly thought it was kind of the opposite that we were like almost held to a higher standard, yeah. and that because you were so busy with basketball practices and school, it felt like it was almost harder for the athletes than for the non-athletes. And maybe that mm-hmm. was self-imposed, but I, I know it was a lot of us who felt, you know, that that added pressure to do it. But, but boy, I, I just thought it was a great combination mm-hmm. of really encouraging you to take your school seriously and know that we weren't going to be professional athletes. We were going to, you know, do something else after this, but that sports could be a big part of your foundation that you're going to learn from and grow from.
4: Yeah, you know, it's interesting as we've visited with so many of you guys, the, uh, the process by which you landed at, at St. John's, wasn't as formalized or coached or counseled the way kids are to get to school today you know they've got a vision for who they want to be and these are the schools and this is the track to get into those schools I mean I find it interesting you know you grew up down the road you got wrapped up in the energy of the joint you were a counselor this seems like a good place to go Phil's going to go to St. Cloud some things happen circumstance You're at St. John's but the so the circumstances by which everyone arrives at St. John's are so varied.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: But the way in which they come out is so common, which is, boy, was I ever lucky, was I ever blessed mm-hmm. to land there in those circumstances with those people and playing basketball and getting the education. Isn't that interesting yeah. that just the circumstances are so different that everyone comes in under yeah. it. but
2: they go out with mm-hmm. one common, which is. I'm I think pretty that's lucky well, I landed. I think that's well said. And I think part of it is when you're 18 years old, you're not probably really even sure what you what you all need, yeah. you yeah. know. And so you need teachers and mentors and coaches to yeah. to help shape you. And so when it's all done, you look back on it and go, "Wow, that was way cooler than I even thought," because I didn't really understand it when I came in. So okay. it,
5: there wasn't, you know, fully uh, a program to address that, but I I know that upperclassmen like you guys, um, I ran into you in the weight room and I'm like, how does this guy lift weights this hard before practice? Like, doesn't that affect your shooting? And you were like, Oh, you just, you know, I feel like this is something that I need to do to, um, be able to play inside at my size. And, you know, you could probably benefit from that too. And it's like, okay, I guess I better start coming (laughs) out of the weight room and (laughs) getting after that, you know, on the court, nothing's given to you, but off the court, upperclassmen were super supportive. Um, so then later when you brought in Rick Tice, you know, this great young player um, on the court, nobody was going to give him anything, um, but off the court, getting him, you know, helping him feel included and, you know, part of a team, even though he was coming from a long ways away is just kind of the, the culture um, compete like heck. We're not going to let him take our position, uh, but if he earns it, he earns it.
2: Yeah. I it think it's a great observation, though, that there is a common experience that when we're at the book signing a couple of weeks ago or whatever, there's, it's not too hard to connect experiences. I'm sure you're seeing that in these uh, series of podcasts here, that there's a pretty common thread. And of course, having Schmidt at the helm for so long, too, probably created a lot of commonality of good experience around that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you
3: know, on that with the upperclassmen piece, you know, I think you and I, Trevor, took that job, job pretty seriously, you know, as, as captains, and yep. making sure that the younger guys were, were good, you know, and, and taken care of. And what I remember about that is coming up and walking actually behind the scores table and then behind the Johnny bench, and, and as I was doing that, this is while the starting lineups are getting announced, I see Phil Johnson kind of sees me, leans back in his chair, puts his hand out, just for a, a low five, I guess, in the terminology of the day, what a gratifying moment that was for me, knowing that the time and energy that that I put in, that John put in, that Trevor, the other upperclassmen put in to make sure that the younger guys were good and felt included was really paying off. And there was some recognition of that. But one of the things that struck me as I was kind of prepping for today is that we, we used to have so many guys that I think we kept like 13 freshmen when we were freshmen. Right. I mean, just an incredible number. Um, the guys that I'm most familiar with are that is that St. Cloud mafia, right? That's mm-hmm. Rizzy, Tim bot. Um, you know, I remember you guys. Um, but I don't think they have as many guys now, do they? They've got a varsity and then they probably, maybe they keep 18 total. Yeah, I watched him practice the other day and went to uh, Tom Arth's funeral
1: at 9 o'clock okay. on Saturday. And then went, uh, Pat asked me to come down to practice and talk to the team, which I did, watch practice. And there's, I would say, about 20, 22 guys out right now. Okay, There's some injured. He um, came over. They all came over and talked to us, and uh, Paul Burnaby and myself talked about the book, of, of course. And it was fun watching them. They're... Uh, they're moving the ball up the court quicker, and uh, they're running this year. Uh, they don't have the bigs and, they've had in the last few years. No, that's true. And they're, we, we watched, and a couple guys had sh- shots that they took that were 30 feet out. <laughs> wow. And you guys would have loved that. I mean, you, you've been cranking the ball up all the time. My gosh. And, yeah. uh, it, was, uh, it was fun watching them. and But they're not really big, although – some of the guys that were hurt were the were the bigger guys, uh, maybe six, 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 seven, okay. somewhere in that area, but they didn't seem to have that big honker, you know, in the
2: middle to um, be able to go to. It's all but threes it, and d's now, right? I mean, you watch oh, even the NBA games well, and you some, talk. Because uh, that changed some, some the game. Some them, sometimes oh. some of those NBA teams don't have anybody on the court bigger than six seven. That's true. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah, and everybody can shoot it. Oh, yes. Yeah, everyone.
1: <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, you remember when you, when you were in Yugoslavia? They had big guys who could shoot the three point shot yeah. there.
2: I we mean, didn't talk were. about that, actually, but that three point shot came in our our year. Yeah. Remember that? That was ours.
3: It was experimental, right? Yeah. Our senior yes. year, and then it I went out, and then it went back in. The went year back in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah we it, had tried to institute it in 1981, I think, in the NEIA, when I was president of the Coaches Association. And we took it to the NCAA. They voted it down, and our um, our executive committee and the NEIA voted it down also. We had wanted the three point shot and also the forty five second clock. Yeah, yeah,
2: got it. Yeah, there was there was there was a lot of teams trying to. Just dribble the ball out. And, you know, I remember Phil Ford for North Carolina. He'd like, oh, yeah, like, oh, yeah. the, the Four final, quarters. it would be like 16 Four to 12 <laughs> would be the final score. And it was like, well, that was
3: a Carlton game, our senior yeah, year. Yeah. Right?
2: Yeah. I just, think it was like 33 32. They just hold like the that. ball, you know. Yeah. That was really bad for the game. So that was, it was yeah. all, it was all a good change. But I know the, the implementation of the three point shot was not smooth. It was, no, like, it was not. It was kind of choppy. And, mm-hmm. It's a lot better now. So, John, switching
3: gears a little bit in your experience as a CEO of a publicly traded company, high profile, right? A lot of attention. What in the St. John's and or St. John's basketball experience prepared you for that?
2: You know, I, I think the corporate world is equally competitive to college basketball. And there's just an element of uh, self confidence and improvement and stuff that carries over, you know, that uh, growing up where I did and what I did. I mean, I had a great family. I don't mean to make it sound like I came off the streets or whatever, but we were a small town and we didn't have a lot of money and didn't have a history of going to college. And like I said several times, just that whole experience of accomplishing things that, you didn't think you could and learning things that you didn't even know you needed to learn and, you know, building all that confidence when it, for me, it just carried over into work that, you know, I was just going to earn my way up the corporate ladder, just like I earned my way up the basketball ladder. And I think there's an element of, I, I used to talk at Robinson about that too. There's, you know, there's leadership and some obvious things, but I, I, I always referred to it as just learning how to compete, you know, learning how to, want to be better because you got to bring your teammates along with you in corporate America, just like you do in basketball. Right. You know, if you're just out for yourself, that usually doesn't go very well. And so you gotta, you gotta be ambitious and you gotta have personal goals, but you gotta make it about the corporation, just like you make it about the team. There's a lot of analogies with that stuff that I think served me well. Uh,
3: Biggest challenges, you know, that you faced, um, would it be when the share price might be plummeting? Would you get <laughs> I
2: mean there. Right under, you know but, the the corporate equivalent uh, of basketball games is your quarterly earnings release, so, right? Okay, you know yeah, four we go that's four, that's four that's so four that's times that's a year you gotta <laughs> show the world everything you did and explain it and talk Uh, about why it was, was, or wasn't what you expected and share price goes up or down and people are happy or mad or whatever. mm -hmm. So it's like getting a, it's like getting a quarterly report card in front of everybody, you know, uh, (laughs) once a year. So I had 17 years of, uh, you know sort of quarterly earnings releases that you don't sleep a lot the night before them you know because you're sure working on what you're going to mm-hmm. say and you're trying to prepare for whatever question might come along and you know no different than a basketball game it's like you know, you want to play good during the game, but it really is the manifestation of how hard you worked in the summertime and how how well you practice and all the rest of that. So I'd say the same thing in corporate America is like those earnings release days were big days, but they were just the manifestation of how hard you had worked and how logical your, you know, decisions were and stuff like that. But I, I it's a. You know, the the right amount of accountability and transparency and visibility can be motivating. Too much of it can be stressful and negative. And mm-hmm. so there were probably times when it was too much. And I don't miss it, to be honest. I mean, I, the retirement the last three years has been awesome. Has really uh, get to focus on a, on a lot of different things. And I, I'm sure we all finished playing basketball, too. There's an element of relief for that, too. You know, that you're pushing yourself and competing and, uh, you know, it's there's. There, I think there are a lot of similarities. But it's a team kind of a
1: situation when I look at the corporate world, and I really don't know much about it, but it seems to me the successful corporations do have a lot of team situation. It's sort of unlike our uh, House of Representatives. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I think about that, Coach, is you know, public corporations especially do a really good job of, of incenting you with company stock. And, you know, the way you accumulate wealth and the way you accumulate personal success is if the team succeeds, Sure. you know, and it's one of the things that disappoints me the most about professional athletes these days is it's unionized and very individualized. Yeah. You know, they don't even care or think much about if they're going to be with the same team five years from now when their contract comes up. There's, there's not that. Whereas, you know, in the business world, it gets pretty personal. You know, it's it's you're all in it together. It's all about your family's net worth. You're going to you're going to win or lose together because you just shared stock price mm-hmm. around that. So mm-hmm. not only is it the same sort of game, I, I could even argue that corporate America does a better job than professional sports of reinforcing the team element mm-hmm. of it with shared outcomes. Yeah.
4: John, it's interesting too, the way I like the way you describe the similarities of corporate and athletics and what you learn and you know the the other thing I'd add to that is um, and I think you said it in 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 your thoughts there in your words a little bit but this idea that where did you get your sensibility well you know where we get our sensibility we've been in hundreds of locker rooms with a lot of different dynamics with egos you yeah. you know and with different coaches and the good and the bad and the ugly and I I think growing up in locker rooms is a great place to learn sensibility, how to read an audience. Mm-hmm. What's the dynamic? Who's who's with me and who's against me? Without anybody even saying anything, look around the table and go, "Ooh, okay." I think we I think we know how we're going to play this one, right? And I just.
2: You know, that's one thing I'd add or accentuate from you. We could model, probably too. go on all day with this, but one of the other ones I really like, too, is learning how to lose. You know, in corporate America, a lot of bad stuff happens. <laughs> and how you respond to failures is just like how you respond to losing in sports. And it can either make you better or it can, it can hurt you, you know. And I think uh, as, as much as you learn confidence and winning and teamwork and all leadership, all those good things, you learn how to lose, too. Uh, and that's, uh, I think sometimes equally valuable to, to build your character around how you respond to that.
5: Yep. Yeah. Another good one. Yeah, absolutely. We saw, I saw, you know, I was in the education system, not the corporate system, but so many of the lessons are exactly the same. You know, you're teaching with a team of people. And you can get frustrated if somebody's not pulling their weight and try to do everything yourself, but that's not going to work. So it's like you got to find ways to Mm -hmm. um, bring everybody else along or realize if you're not pulling your own weight that, uh, you know, we're all in this together and uh, you're either going to get better together or we're not. That's it. Yeah. Guys, this has been great. Thank you. Thanks so much. I
3: appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Another uh, stellar experience here.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, we so gang. so think of it this way, too. I always think at the end of these, we've, I don't even know what time it is. We lose track of time. Right. Well, about 25 minutes ago, I said we didn't have yeah. anything
3: else to time. <laughs> yeah. Here we yeah. are, yeah. right?
4: And yeah. we could go for another hour. But So we go for a couple hours. It'll get edited down to, you know, maybe a 30 to 35-minute episode. However, it gets queued up. And just think of the archive. The story. I mean, the thirty minutes will be precious. The whole two hours is of value, yeah. you know. And we've archived some really wonderful things that the two of you shared with us and you experienced. And uh, Coach chimed in
5: just like we thought he would, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Which for doing great. this, you guys. Really, and, I really. Yeah, it's Well,
3: uh, we really enjoyed really, it. I really yeah. enjoyed
5: season one. Good. Yeah. I, I think. Um,
3: I think the biggest growth moment we've experienced is when Frank started facilitating the conversation with (laughs) the 79th the other day. Yeah. When we first sat down with Frank, we're down in Mankato, you know, because we had to get close to him, right? He's in the little center. (laughs) So we're in the technology center in Mankato, and I've got my questions all laid out, and I think we went through 10 in the first five minutes, and I'm like, oh, crap. Because Frank was like, yes. No, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Was yes. funny. yeah, and then I'm like, what are we going to do? And by the end of it, he's like, wait, aren't we going to talk about Montana? Remember that mask? Yeah. He's a very humble guy. Yeah, I mean, he, really, he really is. Oh, That's yeah. what's been fun yeah. for us is to get to know, you know, so many of these people that we've heard so much about. And, um, you know, and then I think, Sean, you and I have talked a little bit about this, some of the impact, you know, yeah. that people are sharing with us.
2: Well, for most of us, you know, you leave college and some version of work and live in other places and getting married and having kids and next thing the next twenty or twenty-five years are a blur. Yeah. And, Red. Then, and then finally when you're like empty nesting, you look back on it and go, Wow, how did this happen how did this how did this happen? You know? And like you look back on it and it's it literally not only do you not know what to expect going into it, but sometimes it takes a few decades for it to marinate before you look back and go, wow, that was pretty important along, along yeah. the journey there. So this is all part of that therapy. Well,
4: it yeah. is. Yeah, it yeah.
3: is. And, you know, it's been, it's been a labor of love, it's been fun. I mean, um, we've really enjoyed it. Ryan's pretty amazing, it, as John said earlier, making us look smart. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. There's
2: a limit to that. To that. Make, yeah. you, to Make that. you look efficient
3: yeah. or whatever yeah. Yeah. For competent. Make me sound like that. <laughs> yeah. Be a podcaster. <laughs> That's someday,
4: maybe. You, know, you know, John, that, that whole idea when you do, you sit back and you start connecting the dots and you realize just how critical some of these things were in the early years. Or if I go left there, it's hard to say how far left I'm going to end up. You know, yeah. Versus I took the right to St. John's. Mm-hmm. I got to know a coach. Um, and then all of a sudden, things start lining up.
2: It's, yeah. It's fascinating to me. I, I took this leadership development thing once uh, along the corporate journey. And and the thing started by you had to create a personal timeline to share. It was like a three-day thing. It was a pretty deep dive into your head. You know, So you had to create a... <laughs> Uh, like, what were the 10 or 15 most important decisions you've made in your life? That was oh, kind, of, wow. kind of how okay. the thing started. And, of course, it's everybody's like, oh, I got married, you know, I had kids or whatever. But then you start thinking back about, like, oh, yeah, I went to college. You know, that was yeah. like, you know, like, you know, like you go through and then they had you map out exactly to your point like you know what what are those inflection points where you did or didn't go to college you did or didn't get married you did or didn't have kids you know you did you changed jobs or whatever and it's like you lay this thing out and you look at it and you go huh you know those things back there that i you know that I, i decided to cram an accounting major in you know if i hadn't done that you know like wow you know like I listened to Murph. You know, it was really good. You know, like you go, you go back in that timeline, and those inflection points are huge. Well, those those big five decisions that are easiest to come to um, are
5: not even as important as the next ten. Maybe those next ten could have changed things completely. Just just as deciding to keep playing basketball, right? Mm -hmm.
2: You know, why did you do that? Probably would have been pretty easy to just go study abroad and do something less. You know, whatever. But you you hang in there and then that shapes your experience and what you do. And I've listened to you enough to know you've had those too around moving up <laughs> from Chicago to yes, the Northwoods yeah, and stuff. And yeah. you look back on those decisions and it defines your life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you look back at people who were very important in your life, people who made changes
1: in your life. Yeah. And there there are quite a few of them, you know, yeah. back in grade
2: school, maybe high school, coach, teacher, yeah. whoever, you know, yeah. it's, Part of the emphasis of this thing I went through was about 15 years ago was to, you know, help you plot out the rest of it. You know, it's not over. You know, that there's yeah. still yeah. there's still a few more of those to mm-hmm. come. And what do you want it to to be all about? But it's always helpful to look back before you look forward. And yeah. St. John's is just like uh, everyone who I stay in touch with. It just the older you get, the more it sticks out as as mattering. Oh yeah, it's good. Thanks. Right, Thank, guys. You guys. Thank you, guys. Terrific. Mm-hmm. Terrific morning. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't wait me. to tell Steve I saw the oh. shot. I will. So, yeah. so, what, so what, does, what does Nova
0: all have? Is it- Next time. On no place I'd rather be.
3: Was it when your kids started going to St. Ben's, St. John's?
2: <clears throat> Tony went
1: to one of Jim Smith's basketball camps. And had a good time up there. Came home. And, and So when it came time to pick a college, we said, well, are you going to go look around? No, I'm going to St. John's. And I said, you're what? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I think I want to go up there. So he did. And uh, I think you enjoyed it, didn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And so then once he went, everybody else just followed him up there. So six of my sons and... My two daughters have gone to St. John's
5: and St. Ben's. Wow. <laughs> One, there's a connection. Oh, yeah. Well, one's up there right now. Yeah.
3: So there is a... How many years in a row there's been a Bassett up at St. John's since... Well, there was a gap, right? A gap. From 1958
0: to 1980. This has been... No Place I'd Rather Be. Starring Coach Jim Smith. Hosted by Tom Connell and John Russell. Produced by Ryan Russell. Executive produced by Tom Connell and John Russell with Bench Warmers Media. Music and engineering by Ryan Russell. Thanks again to Phil Johnson and John Weehaw for sharing their time and stories. And thank you, as always, to Johnny alum Steve Cummings, Class of 83 at Nova Consulting, for the use of their beautiful facilities. This season of No Place I'd Rather Be is brought to you by the Sexton Family Foundation, helping usher in the next generation of leaders. And Sixth Man Enterprises, creating a state of readiness. Are you a member of the Johnny Basketball Alumni Association? You should be. Sign up right now to join the Johnny Basketball Nation. Go to johnnybasketballalumni.org to sign up today. Or click the link in our show notes. Thank you, as always, to Coach Jim Smith, whose book with former player 69 grad Paul Burnaby, chronicling the history of 123 seasons of Johnny Basketball, is available for purchase through the St. John's University Bookstore. Check the show notes or our website for details. Please be sure to like, follow, rate, and review. No Place I'd Rather Be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcast needs. For more in-depth and featured content on each episode, visit our website at Benchwarmersmedia.com. Questions, comments, ideas? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to info at Benchwarmersmedia.com. No Place I'd Rather Be is a Benchwarmers Media production in association with Nine Pines Podcasts. I'm Ryan Russell. Thanks for listening.